0: Welcome. You're listening to the Voice of Vedanta podcast from the Vedanta Society of Southern California. Visit us on the web at Vedanta.org. Om asato mapsa gama ya. Damaso homa joti gama rido orma amritam gamaya dakshinam te namaha om lead us from the unreal to the real lead us from darkness unto light, lead us from death to immortality, and reach us through and through ourselves. Nevermore protect us from ignorance by thy sweet, compassionate face. Our subject this morning is the law of justice. We're going to be talking about the law of karma. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap a fundamental teaching of all schools of Indian philosophy. The law of karma goes a long way to explain how the mind is governed the psychodynamics of human action. Briefly stated, the law of karma maintains that every action that we do That is, every self-conscious volitional action, every self-conscious volitional human action has two effects. One of them is internal and subjective and immediate. The other is external, objective, and may be delayed. Whatever we do leaves an impression on the mind. In Sanskrit, it's called a samskara. It's more than a memory trace. But that impression changes our personality. It changes our character. Whatever we do also, it sets up, uh, that is the law of cause and effect, that for every action there will be an effect. And there will be a chain of causation that is set up that eventually will return to us. The fruits of our action will return to us like a boomerang. I usually use the analogy of the hunter with a high-powered rifle. And he's out there in the forest. He's, he's hunting for deer. He sees the movement out among the trees. He takes his hunting rifle, puts it up against his shoulder, aims, and he pulls the trigger. That's a self-conscious volitional action. He's fired that gun. Two things immediately happen. Number one is that that high-powered rifle will kick back against his shoulder, And maybe it will, in fact, even leave a bruise on his shoulder. Immediate, subjective action and reaction. But we know, too, that when he pulls that trigger, the bullet goes out, goes through the trees, and it hits not not a deer, but the farmer's cow. And the farmer, seeing his cow has been shot, he calls the police, and the police come. We hear the sirens. They come, and they come and arrest the hunter. So the effects and consequences of action have gone round full circle and returned to him again. So we see two effects of action. This morning, we're not talking about karma and character. We're not going to be talking about the internal subjective effects of our volitional behavior. Rather, we're going to focus on the external objective aspects I've titled my uh, subject this morning, The Law of Justice, because what we're talking about is going to be all about justice. And this law of karma, in this aspect that we're discussing this morning, is a great law of justice, is a moral value. Its values, of course, are something that are very high up on the abstraction ladder. And justice is maybe in a category with goodness, Truths, beauty, and these are things which, they're not sense objects. We can't feel it. We can't measure justice. We can't go out and count it and measure it. We can't even give a a satisfactory, essentialist definition of justice. And it's a subject that has been discussed, debated, and contemplated by philosophers for thousands of years. Nevertheless, we are convinced that there is such a thing as justice, that justice exists, that somehow it is real. It's just as real as love, just as real as truth, just as real as beauty. How do we know that? Well, we just have a moral sense within us, just as we have an aesthetic sense. We have five senses, we have the power to see, we have the power to hear, physical objects, so also we have within us the power to discern beautiful things. We have aesthetic sense. We have a moral sense. We know what is right and intuitively we can know what is right and what is wrong. Just like with language. Now you hear somebody say, so they make a mistake in grammar or something. You may never have even studied grammar or know anything about the laws of grammar. You know it's wrong, what they just said. It's kind of a normative sense, it's natural, that's the normativity of language. But similarly it is with justice, that we have a moral sense and we we feel within ourselves, all human beings feel within themselves that justice, not only does it exist, not only is it real, but it is good, it is true. Justice should prevail. That's a basic moral intuition that everyone should be equal before the law, that everyone should be treated fairly, that every moral agent should get what they deserve. This is a basic moral intuition. And the law of karma affirms this intuition and tries to explain to us and to give us a philosophical rationale for what we already believe in. This law of karma is a great moral law. That is, it has to do with right and wrong actions. It has to do with good and evil, with dharma and adharma, with with things which are life-affirming and things which are life-denying. The law of karma, that is, this law of justice, affirms that whatsoever a man soweth, That shall he reap. It manifests itself in the physical world as the law of cause and effect. Newton's second law, for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. As in the physical world, so also in the moral sphere. What goes around comes around. And if you act with goodwill, not only do you become a better person... That's the immediate internal subjective effect on your character. Not only that, but the fruits of your action will travel around and will return to you in the form of circumstances that will reinforce your behavior. If you sin, if you act against the great moral law, natural law of balance, the law of the natural order of things, then the consequences of that, not only will you become a worse person, but the consequences of your action will travel around in a circle and return to you, will come back to you and create difficulties in your life. In the words of the Christian Bible, be not deceived. This is a Christian Bible. I'm quoting for here. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. They that plow iniquity and sow wickedness will reap the same. To him that soweth righteousness shall be a sure reward. So it's a law that kind of manifests really in all the great wisdom traditions of the world. But I think it's only in Indian philosophy where it's developed as as a full doctrine with a philosophical analysis and discussion. This law of karma is a moral law. That means it's a law that governs actions that are considered as means to ethical and moral and spiritual ends. Generally, Such moral laws are considered to be administered and enforced by some authority figure. We think, for example, in a family, the earthly father, he's the lawgiver of the family. He makes the laws of the household and he administers and enforces those laws and meets out rewards and punishment to the children, hoping that the children will grow and mature in a good way similarly it is in religion that there is our father in heaven who is considered to be as god is often defined in the judeo-christian tradition and monotheistic traditions god is often defined as the law giver that is where did this moral law which is within our psyche it's deeply embedded that is our conscience where did that come from well According to moral theology of monotheism, there is a personal God who is the great lawgiver. God makes the laws. God administers the laws. God enforces the laws. He makes uh, moral judgments as to who has fulfilled the requirements of the law. He meets out rewards and punishments. So there are many laws in in the equivalent to the commandments of God, the Ten Commandments, and in brief we can say that the law we've all heard of, the golden rule, which kind of summarizes the uh, way of action, that is, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's kind of the Judeo-Christian law of karma. Students of the law of karma also speak in similar language. That is, this is religious language, and the law of karma is kind of within this domain of a religious terminology. So we speak here in terms of rewards and punishments, of right and wrong, that is of a moral education. But there is essential difference between the law of karma and the golden rule The golden rule is a prescriptive rule. It's a command that comes down from on high, whereas the law of karma is a natural law. It's equivalent in the physical world with the law of cause and effect, with the law of action and reaction. In the moral sphere, it's considered to be not a prescriptive law, not telling us how we should or ought to or must behave, but simply describing what are the consequences of our behavior. Justice, as conceived in Indian philosophy, this is, this is what's called virtue ethics. This is the virtue, this is the ethics of, of Greek the Greeks of Plato or Aristotle. It's not monotheism. And they regard justice as something like good health. And if you eat good food and you do your exercises, you become stronger and stronger. Physically, you will enjoy good health, and you will flourish, and you'll prosper. Whereas if you eat junk food, and you don't do your exercises, then maybe you will become weaker and weaker, become sick. Both of those cases, we could call them moral. That is their means to an end. What's the end? The end is is a good health. That's the end. And the means to us, that is if we're good, If we take care of ourselves, that is abusing our health, it's kind of a moral failing. Promoting our health, respecting ourselves, respecting our body and our physical form is the part, is kind of a moral action. Therefore, we say that eating well and exercising, those are good actions. But usually we don't talk, we don't say if you eat well, if you become weak and fat from eating junk food, we don't say that though that you're being, somehow God has punished you. Rather we say, well, that was was your karma. That's the effects of the consequences of your own self-conscious volitional actions. So this law of karma, it maintains that justice will prevail and that good will be rewarded, that evil deeds will somehow have their own consequences, and that everyone will get, that is, every moral agent will get what they deserve. But as we look around us, of course, we can see that, well, it doesn't seem like that's always always the, the way it is. The law of karma maintains that crime doesn't pay, but as we look around us, we can see very well that sometimes it seems the crime does pay, and criminals get off scot-free, that they're not fully punished. What about all the evil men of history who, uh, even if they are punished, it seems like their punishment is not even equivalent to the magnitude of their crimes? Similarly, it is with when we consider, on the other hand, those good people. There are many good people who work with goodwill and yet die, maybe unknown, unrewarded, penniless, despised in the world. Many saints, many sages who live good, moral lives, maybe uh, in the end are burned at the stake. It seems so unfair. And yet, the law of karma that the great law of justice still prevails because the fact is that we cannot judge. We cannot make a moral judgment of an action in the context of a single event, in the context of a day, a week, a month, a year, or even maybe in a lifetime. And the students of the law of Carmel course, maintain in the the context of Indian philosophy, that we are a divine immortal soul that goes marching on through life after life, and that in order to fully appreciate the law of karma, this law of justice, we have to have a a larger perspective, we have to have a, a larger, broader context, we have to step back and get the full panorama of life after life. I often remember San Diego, walk through Balboa Park, you can see you're walking along a sidewalk, you see uh, there are the murals of Diego Rivera, and maybe you're walking by that mural, you just see a splatch of red or green or blue, you don't even understand, maybe it looks like graffiti, I know on the wall, but when you step across the street, you get perspective, you get back, you see the whole panorama of the mural, you see that beautiful picture emerges, so it is with moral perspective. One has to uh, step back in order to appreciate and to understand we need context. Meaning requires context. Remember in the gospel Sri Ramakrishna tells about the story of the Shava Sadhana, that is a sadhu he made preparations to worship the goddess Kali. The worship was to take place in a cremation ground at midnight on the night of the Kali Puja, and he set about gathering many exotic items as required by the scriptures, rare exotic fruits and flowers and incense, and most important of all, the shava, that means the corpse, which was to be his asana, his seat for performing the worship. Well, as he was finally assembling all of these items, at that same time, there was a man who was returning late at night from a tavern. And uh, he was uh, feeling a little tipsy, a little intoxicated, walking through the forest by that cremation ground. He looked over, and he saw that sadhu assembling all those items with great care and great love and devotion, all the other items of the worship. And he stood there by a tree. He's fascinated. He watched him, and he watched as the, he finished arranging for the puja. The sadhu, that means the holy man, he very carefully said sat down on the corpse. That was his, his meditation seat. And as he did so, the head of the corpse rose up and said, Rah, like this. <laughs> and the poor Sadhu was so frightened, so scared, he just jumped up and he ran off. He left all of the items of his worship there, lying there. And the man there who had been coming home, he saw all this. He noticed all that. He walked over there. He looked around and said, wow, what a pity, you know, all of these things. He went to so much trouble, all that work he did. I think I'll just sit down here. I'm gonna sit down and maybe I'll do the worship myself. And so he sat down on that corpse. The head came up like, like this. He just pushed it down, oh, keep quiet. And no sooner had he done so, no sooner had he closed his eyes. There appeared before him a vision of the Divine Mother Kali. She said, Oh, my child, you're seated for my worship. She said, I'm so pleased with you. I offer you here to offer you boons. And the, the man, he looked up, he was stunned and amazed to see that vision of the goddess. And he was kind of flustered and perplexed. And he uh he asked, he says, Mother, he said, Mother, he said, uh I have to ask you a question. It seems so extraordinary that you have appeared before me. I've done nothing. I was just on my way home from the tavern. I sat down here on this corpse, whereas the other man, who went to so much trouble, he was such a good devotee, he received nothing. And then the Divine Mother told him, yes, my child. You are seeing. you have a very short-sighted view of what's uh, happening in life. Fact is, is that you have worshipped me for many lives, every life, every life. You just had a little more karma that needed to be completed. And so by sitting here, you've completed that final act of karma. And so you get now the fruits of your karma and your rewards. Well, that's the, that's the old teaching story. The idea being that we can understand We understand now what happened in a larger context, in the context of life after life. This law of karma is a law of justice that assures us that justice will prevail. But the time of reckoning is often uncertain. That is, the retribution for evil actions or the recompense for good actions may be either quick or delayed. In some instances, the fruits of our karma manifest immediately. They manifest very quickly, and in the language of New Age jargon, we call it cash karma. And you all know examples of how when you do something immediately, kind of an action, reaction, response that balances the books. But oftentimes, months and even years and even lifetimes go by before the retribution falls or before the positive fruits return. And it may seem that we've kind of sidestepped all the consequences of our actions. Sometimes it may even seem like we got away with murder. But in the long run, the law of karma maintains that justice will prevail. In India, there's a story about this considered to be a kind of a true story about a, a wealthy landowner who in uh, this all came out later. But early on in his life, he was a, a dacoit. That means like a highwayman. He was a highway robber. And he would waylay merchants on the way to town. And he and his gang were very brutal, and they often killed the people in the merchant's party, and this happened on one occasion. They waylaid the merchant, they killed his servants, they killed his son, and they robbed him of everything that he had, and that merchant was left alone, bereft of all his possessions, his dearly beloved son is his family. Very soon he died of a broken heart. But uh, the dacoit, that is the highwayman, he got away. And he had a good amount of wealth from that last robbery. He felt kind of guilty about what he had done. But he had a change of heart. He decided to turn over a new leaf. So he gave up his old life of crime and he settled down, he bought some land, the course of time he was married and he had a son. And the son became the focus of his life. The son was the dearest thing in his life. It was the thing after all that made his life worth living and he raised his son with great loving care. But it so happened that on one occasion, the young son fell ill and he got sicker and sicker. They called in doctors and the the landowner at that time. He was frantic and trying to find a cure for the boy. But the boy got worse and worse. Doctors gave up hope. And the landowner found himself one day in the last moments holding his dearly beloved son in his arms. And the little boy looked at him and he opened his eyes. And he said, Father, do you remember long ago that merchant that you you robbed that merchant? you killed his son, do you remember that?" And the father was stunned to hear this. This was long before that boy, he was, oh yes, he stuttered out, oh yes, yes, I remember that. And The boy looked at his eyes, he says, I am that merchant, and then he died. And the father, there he was, stricken with grief, and that wicked highwayman, later become a wealthy landowner, had to pay with tears of grief for his old, long-forgotten crimes. So this law of karma, it's kind of, when you hear stories like that, well, it seems uh, this law of karma is a very sobering law. And if you've ever been maybe to a house of of justice, you've been to courts of law, maybe you've seen the uh, statue of, of Lady Justice. She has three attributes. One is she is blindfolded. One is that she's holding a scales, balance, right and wrong, good and evil, balanced in the scales and she holds in her right hand an upraised sword. It's a very uh, sobering experience to be in the presence of that image, that personification of the law of justice. Greeks also had a similar idea. They had a goddess. The goddess Nemesis was her name. She was a goddess of fortune who watched over and enforced kind of anyone who offended the gods or the laws of the gods would be meted out justice by Nemesis, the goddess of retribution. In fact, many Greek tragedies feature the workings of this goddess as an integral part of the the plot of the tragedy. And we can see here, well, they believed that there's a personification of the, what in Indian philosophy is a great universal natural law or principle. And the lesson is that we may have long forgotten our past evil deeds, but the nemesis of crime is always working. This is the lesson you get from the Greek tragedies. That is, there is such a thing as karmic retribution. And it may be that you think that you have got away with it. But in reality, you didn't. Old sins have long shadows. And just because you think back on the things which you have done, that is, just because you weren't caught, doesn't mean that you got away with it. And that there is a higher law which is working. It's not so much the doing of the thing that is so bad. It's the consequences. The consequences come around and impact your mind and heart. And the day will come, a little all karma, that's kind of the sobering aspect of this teaching, that there will come a day of reckoning when we will stand before Lady Justice And we'll see those scales, and we'll see that raised sword, and, well, karma guarantees that the good and evil will return to the doer. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. The yogis say, that is in the law books, for example, the laws of Manu, say that our karma returns to us always in kind, in degree and in kind. And when we think here of karma, we think here of action. We often think specifically of physical behavior, of physical action. But we have to remember that there's such a thing as thought karma and speech karma. Speech action in particular are more pervasive even than physical behavior. And the teachings of the laws of Manu in the old law books teach that if you think good thoughts, then good thoughts will return to you. If you speak good words, then good words will return to you. And if you do goodwill actions, then they will return in a physical way. Every action returns to us, that is a moral action returns to us in the same degree and in kind. That is if a farmer plants corn, then he will reap corn similar to what he has planted. Once upon a time there lived a very stingy baker. Uh, Every morning he would get up and he would mix milk and flour and eggs and sugar and uh, he would make bread and cakes and cookies and he would then put those in the window to be sold to his customers. But that baker was so stingy that he never ever allowed so much as a crumb that fell from the, those baking goods to be given away. Even stale crumbs. When he saw poor hungry birds outside, he wouldn't give any of those crumbs. Well, it so happened that the baker's neighbor was a man of a different type, and he enjoyed a life of leisure. He didn't hold down a regular job. He'd get up late in the morning, but when he got up in the morning, the cool morning breeze would be the first thing that he would He'd look up and he'd smell, coming from that bakery next door, the delicious aroma of baked cookies and, and cakes, he, he particularly enjoyed this fragrant, you know, the cinnamon cookies. You see, would come in his window. He, he'd smell that. gave him great happiness, great pleasure in the morning. Well, the selfish baker, he uh, realized he knew what was going on, and it, it it kind of annoyed him that this neighbor was benefiting from his own hard work. He shouldn't have that privilege of enjoying the uh, delicious odor of the bakery, just for free without paying for it. And so the very next day, he went to his neighbor and said, you you can't steal from me anymore. And uh, you enjoy the smell of my bakery, you should have to pay for it. I'm going to charge you 10 uh, pieces of gold to continue to enjoy that smell of that bakery. Otherwise, I'm going to take you to court. I'm going to sue you for theft. Of course, the neighbor just looked at him and laughed. And in fact, the very next day, the baker went to speak to the judge. He filed a lawsuit. And the judge, hearing this case brought before him, called for the baker and for the neighbor to appear before him in the court of law. And instructed the neighbor to bring 10 pieces of gold along with him in his pocket. And on the day of the court trial, the courtroom was packed with curious citizens. And the judge asked the baker and the neighbor to tell their stories. The baker told his story in great detail. And told how his neighbor was stealing the smell without paying for it, and the judge asked the neighbor if that was all true. The neighbor said yes, and so the judge said, well, reach into your pocket, and I want you to take out those 10 pieces of gold. And the neighbor did, so the judge says, okay, i want to hold that gold in your hand. He said, I want you to clink those coins together. Clink, 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 he turns to the baker. You hear that clinking sound? Yes. Yeah. To the baker, I hear that. You enjoy enjoy the sound of that smell, that that clinking sound, don't you? Yes, that's very good. Very good to hear that. Thank you, judge. And then the judge said, yes, very good. Then this then is my decision, said the judge. The neighbor has enjoyed the smell of the bakery. And the baker has enjoyed the sound of the gold coins. And therefore... Justice has been done. Case dismissed. <laughs> well, it kind of illustrates the idea of the students of the law of karma and the old books of the of Manu, law books, which assure us that our karma will return to us in degree and in kind in proportion to what has happened before. This is why, you know, in Indian, on other occasions, we've, when we've spoken on the subject of heaven and hell, we know that that in Indian philosophy, heavens and hells may be there and we may sojourn there for some time, but it's never going to be an infinite amount of time because whatever good or bad deeds we have done, the fruits of our karma will be finite and therefore the rewards or punishment will be in proportion to our work. Sometimes it's helpful for us to think in terms, interesting to think in terms of the psychodynamics of this law. That means, how does this all work? How does it work out that the, the fruits of our action return to us? How can we account for that? Well, we can think about that. Certainly, sometimes the fruits of our action return through the instrumentality of another person or uh, an institution, as in the example of the hunter who accidentally shot the neighbor's cow, that it's the whole of the social institutions that were already in place. They, they managed to deliver the fruits of his karma to him, and so we can kind of understand that, that all makes sense, how it happened. Sometimes the fruits of our karma return, it's, it's more psychological. And it has to do with the some of our character, but the fruits of our karma return to us through our own actions. That is, we, we do something to, to facilitate and to make it so happen that the fruits return to us. And I always think about the famous example there, Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment. You know how in that novel, Raskolnikov, young student, he commits the perfect crime. He's a nihilist. He plans this crime, commits this perfect murder. No one has any, no evidence. He gets away with murder. But then his conscience starts working. He battles his conscience. Something is psychology. And there's just something within himself. He starts to, in conversations, he starts to purposefully kind of give himself away. He goes down to the police station and he makes an acquaintance there with the police chief. And in the course of time, He exposes himself so that pretty soon they know that he has committed this crime. Well, how did it happen? Well, we can see kind of psychologically. The person himself has enabled this to happen. On other occasions, however, we can't account for it that way either. And sometimes it happens in a more mysterious way. And I remember on one, there was a newspaper article that appeared Long ago, there was an event that happened in uh, a little town called Honey Grove, Texas. It was in the newspaper, so you know it must be true. And uh, the facts of this case came out later. Well, it so happened that there was a rancher who met a Texas girl and he fell in love with the girl. They were engaged and they were married. And unbeknownst to the rancher and to his new wife, there was a third person. His name was Henry Ziegland. And he harbored a passionate, secret love for this Texas girl. But he was so passive. uh, He never made it known to either one. But during the courtship and the engagement and the marriage, he looked on with great envy, with great jealousy, and within him growing a sense of anger and malice at what was happening. It wasn't long after the marriage that Henry Ziegland took his hunting rifle, and he went into the area there of that ranch. He came up on a hill, he looked down, and sure enough, there he saw the rancher was down in a, one of the fields, standing near to a large oak tree, and he was alone. There was no one else in sight. And Ziegland took his rifle, he aimed it, and he shot that rancher right between the eyes. And that rifle was so powerful, the bullet went right through his head, lodged deep in the trunk of that oak tree. The bullet was never found, and no one could solve the crime. Well, the rancher was buried, and as you can imagine, in the course of time, Henry Ziegland came knocking on the door of the ranch to meet the widow of the rancher. And sure enough, very soon, they were engaged, they were married, and Ziegland settled down with his new wife and began to live a life of a prosperous rancher. Sounds like our other story. Time passed, years passed, and years and years later, one day, Ziegland, alone, was out plowing his fields, and uh, he saw that there was an oak tree. That oak tree had long, kind of withered and died. he cut off branches to use for firewood, but now it was left just a big stump of that tree. He tried to dig it out, he wanted to get rid of that. Couldn't dig it out, so he got some dynamite planted the dynamite underneath that stump, and uh, lit the fuse, exploded the stump. And the explosion, it blew up the stump, tore apart the wood. Within that wood, that was that bullet. The force of that explosion drove that bullet out from the stump, Henry Ziegler right between the eyes. He died, and there he was found. And later on, with the bullet, and with the gun, they reconstructed the crime. Well, what are we to make of that? It seems like an incredible coincidence. This is why students of the law of karma, as part of this doctrine, were kind of forced to admit that in some cases, there is and there may be a great lord of karma. That is, there must be a a super intelligence that's kind of put all that together. How did that work? Uh, how did all that happen? So the students of Carmel, that is God, may play a part in delivering the fruits of our action. Notice here that God, has not, God is not a judge. God has not made any laws. All God has done is to deliver the fruits of our own karma. God has given us what we deserve. He's made it possible for us to get what we deserve. That's the function of God. In the yoga psychology, Patanjali's conception of God. So, that's something about the law of karma. It's a law that we can see. It's a kind of a serious, sobering law that assures us the crime doesn't pay. On the other hand, it is a law that gives us great hope because it assures us that virtue and goodwill actions will be uh, rewarded. And maybe most important, it assures us that we do not live in a chaos. We do not live in a world of, of chance and random selection. We live in a cosmos that is governed by law and that in the end, justice will prevail. Om Dyo Shanti, Antariksham Shanti, Pritivi Shanti, Appa shantihi O Shadaya Shanti, Vanaspataya Shanti, Vishwedeva Shanti, Brahma shantihi Saravam Shanti, Shanti Reva Shantihi, Same Shanti Om Shantihi, Shantihi, Shanti. Om, peace is in heaven, peace is on the earth, peace is in the sky and in the waters. The herbs and plants and trees are full of peace. The gods are peaceful. May this eternal, universal peace enter our souls and beings. Om. Peace, peace, peace be unto us all. You've been listening to the Voice of Vedanta podcast from the Vedanta Society of Southern California. Thanks for listening.